Let's ask God to help us with his word now. Our gracious uh, Heavenly Father, uh, we do thank you that in your mercy uh, you reveal what will be to us. Uh, Give us the faith that is wise, wise enough to order our lives uh, by what you show us of what will be. Stir us up by your word so that each one of us will be ready for the return of our Lord Jesus. Help me now to speak your word truthfully and clearly and help us all to receive it with understanding and faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, does history have a goal, an overarching purpose in all the chaos and seemingly chance twists and turns of human affairs? Is there some end point in the light of which our own choices and achievements, our contribution to human affairs will be assessed against which our own lives will be seen to be worthwhile or wasted? Many say no. There's no goal, no purpose, no overarching story that embraces all human history, catches up every human life. It's just random and you make the best of things while you can in your brief life here. But Christians have always said, yes, history, human affairs has a goal, the return in glory of the Lord Jesus, the revealing of the greatness and power of the baby born in the manger of the man who hung on the cross, a goal which will shed light on every other human life, reveal whether it was a life well lived or a life squandered, a life worthy of praise or of condemnation. And it's with Jesus' return, his coming again, having come once, born into the world in Bethlehem, that our passage is concerned with the character and timing of his return and how each one of us can live now so we are ready for that day. How do you engage? How you engage with what Jesus says here will make an eternal difference be the difference between whether your life will be seen then to have been a life well lived or a life squandered, a life worthy of praise or of condemnation. And I think we're going to get the PowerPoint up. In response to Jesus' prediction of the destruction of the Jerusalem temple, the disciples asked Jesus a double-barreled question. Oh, well, uh, that I think is last week's and it was a great sermon and uh, I encourage you to to listen to it. Anyhow, they did. They asked Jesus a a double-barrel question Uh, and they say to Jesus, tell us when will these things be and what is the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Now, Clinton did take us through the first part of Jesus' answer in Matthew 24 last week, helping us distinguish the threads of Jesus' description of the character of our age and the judgment on Jerusalem from talk of the end, bringing us to today's passage where our Lord answers the second part of that question, the part about his coming and the close of the age. Teaching, of course, that might be familiar to some of you if you've been hanging around churches for a while, new to others. But teaching, if you paid attention to it, if you stopped to think about it, 
which is quite unsettling for us all. You see, it's hard, isn't it, to hear of the days of Noah without being troubled if your imagination's informed by the scriptures, if you know of that great and overwhelming judgment. Hard to read of our Lord coming like a thief in the knife with all the uncertainty and threat of loss in that image. To read of the serious accountability of our Lord's servants. It's hard to read of all these things and not be disturbed if you're paying attention. But if you feel that, as you feel that, recognise also that this word is being given so that listening to it, believing it, we would not be taken unawares by our Lord's return, not suffer loss, not be cast out among the hypocrites. This is a word given for our good. So let's start by reminding ourselves of the seriousness, the certainty and the wonder of the coming that's spoken of at the end of the age. Now Jesus says this age will close with the coming of the Son of Man. This is what he's talking about, the coming of the Son of Man, that is his coming. And whereas in Daniel 7 it spoke of the coming of the Son of Man to the Ancient of Days to receive an eternal kingdom, a kingdom over all nations and peoples, this coming that Jesus speaks of is the revealing of the majesty and eternal rule over all nations and peoples which the glorious Son has already received. He's speaking of the time when all will recognise his rule, when, as Paul says in Philippians 2, every knee will bow to him. That's the way our Lord speaks of this coming later in this conversation with his disciples in Matthew 25. He speaks of the Son of Man coming in glory and all his angels and all nations gathered before him. Now this is the coming the authors of the New Testament, all of them, consistently look forward to, conduct their ministries and live their lives in the light of. And there are many references to this coming in the New Testament, but just three to show their ever-present consciousness in ordinary conversation, as it were, of our Lord's return. John, so now little children remain in him so that when he appears we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. James, therefore, brothers and sisters, be patient until the Lord's coming. And then verse 8, the Lord's coming is near. And Paul in 1 Thessalonians what is our hope? Who is our hope or joy or crown of boasting in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? All of the authors of the New Testament are always conscious of this coming of the Lord. And this coming is serious, and the references to this are in the outline of the transcript. But it is the close of the age, the time of resurrection and final judgment, the time when, you, as you heard, from 2 Peter, when the new heaven and earth will be ushered in. So it's the time when all will have run out of time and eternal destinies settled. The coming is serious and the coming is certain. We're coming up, and, and thousands of years make no difference to that. We're coming up to Christmas, the first coming of the Son of God. Now that coming tells us 
God is not excluded from his creation by the barriers we might try and erect between heaven and earth, by the restrictions we want to place on God. Created by him, this world is not close to him, and as he began it, he can enter it and he can end it. And we're listening this morning to the words in the gospel of the one who said he would die and rise, the one whose word has been shown to be true by his resurrection from the dead, the one who now lives a deathless life, who's pouring out of the spirit says he reigns and who has authority to do all that he says and who said in the verse immediately preceding our passage, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. His coming is sure. And his coming is wonderful and good, something we should pray and long for, the day when the Lord Jesus will be, in the words of Paul in 2 Thessalonians, glorified by his saints and marvelled at by all those who have believed. Now, why is this day wonderful, something to be longed for when it's actually also so final and awesome? Well, it's not just because of the associated events, the resurrection of believers to life, the judgment of all evil, the destruction of the evil one. It's wonderful and good because it's the revealing of the greatness of our Lord Jesus, and that is so good. The humble and meek one who had time for children, who made the afflicted whole, who sought out sinners to save them, revealed now as reigning over all the one who, is, who in faithful love of his father and love for us was shamed and crucified, now revealed as glorious with boundless, undying life in himself. On that day, the Lord Jesus will be revealed and God will be revealed in him as the faithful saving one who fulfills all he's promised, who establishes his justice and righteousness and silences the pride of humans the one who alone is glorious. And though he will be fearfully glorious, we pray and long for his revealing if we're believers because we love him. That love and longing were joined together by believers at the earliest. Listen to Paul. If anyone doesn't love the Lord, a curse be on him, our Lord come. And Revelation expresses that longing as the bride longing for her husband, her beloved, the spirit and the bride say, come. And that is what our Lord's coming will usher in for his people, the great marriage feast of the Lamb of the Son of God. And it will be wonderful on that day, for on that day, the great overarching story, the story that runs from creation to new creation will actually be revealed as a great love story. It will be seen that what has driven history in all its ups and downs, its griefs and joys, has actually been the Lord's love for his people and his determination to save them, an eternal, free, gracious, faithful and pursuing love. Now, we can lose sight of this in talking of judgment and accountability or in looking forward to our own resurrection and the healing transformation that will be. But it is love 
that makes this a day, awesome as it is, to look forward to. And it is against that love, in the light of that love, that, well, it will be revealed whether we have lived our lives well or squandered them. The serious, certain, wonderful return of our Lord reveals human history as a story that begins in love and ends with the consummation of love in the revealing of the glory of the one we love. But we don't know when that return and the end of the age will be. Our Lord makes that abundantly clear. Now concerning that day and hour, no one knows, neither the angels of heaven nor the Son, except the Father alone. Clear? No one knows, not even the Son, only the Father. Now note the humility of the Son. This coming is his public glorification, the revealing to all of his triumph. It's something he has a right to. But he's content to wait, to leave it all in the hands of the Father, just as he has lived his life trusting the Father and doing his will. And he he reinforces that this day is unknown by speaking of the days of Noah. As the days of Noah were, so the coming of the Son of Man will be. For in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah boarded the ark. They didn't know until the flood came and swept them all away This is the way the coming of the Son of Man will be. See, that life when then was going on as normal, just getting on with life. They didn't know their end was approaching until the flood came. They didn't know until it was too late to do anything about it. And Jesus says that's the way it will be when the Son of Man comes. Life will be going on as normal. People preoccupied with their own affairs and pleasures and he reinforces just how normal every day it will seem. In verses 40 to 41, two men will be in the field. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding grain with a handmill. One will be taken, one left. People will be going about their daily tasks when the Son of Man comes and there is the great separation that will happen then, one to life, one to condemnation. And it's not what they're engaged in at the time which determines whether one is taken and the other is left doing the same thing. It will actually depend on decisions already taken, preparations already made, for that coming will be sudden and unexpected. And there's nothing going on. Well, daily life is just going on as normal. There's nothing going on that is telling people the day is about to come, that they're about to be overtaken by God's judgment. Now, we need to hear that because we keep on thinking, or at least Christians I talk to seem to keep on thinking, that events will be telling everyone that that day is almost here, that there'll be a general air of unease and uncertainty because of the turmoil of the world as there is, for example, at the moment, but that's actually not what Scripture says. Listen to Paul. (coughs) You yourselves know very well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night when they say peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them. 
peace and security. They're not running around anxious. You can't take your sense of alertness or readiness from the world's perception of its danger. You see, the world is committed to its continuity, has a vested interest in proclaiming its own security. It's not events in the world that will prepare us for that day, but the word of God, the word alone, the word you're hearing this morning, the word alone can make us alert, make us ready. And it's to the word we should be giving our attention. And the word says we should always be alert. Whether things seem to be going well or we see threats on the horizon or we're experiencing tumultuous times, be alert since you don't know what day your Lord is coming. But know this, if the homeowner had known at what time the thief was coming, he would have stayed alert and not let his house be broken into. This is why you also must be ready, because the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Now, the image of Jesus coming like a thief in the night (coughs) was one that stayed with the apostles. Uh, One that stayed with the apostles. 1 Thessalonians 5, you've just heard. You know that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. And you heard in 2 Peter, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Now, what does that image tell us of our Lord's coming? Well, a thief doesn't publicise his arrival, does he? He doesn't usually make an appointment beforehand. In fact, his movements will not be noticed, will be hidden from most especially in Jesus' age without streetlights. The time of the thief's arrival is a secret known only to the thief. And if you're not ready for his arrival, you suffer loss. And so the only way to not suffer loss is to stay alert, be ready when the thief arrives. And what you mustn't do is fall asleep or become preoccupied with other things. I mean, how many times in movies... Have we seen, you know, somebody sneak into the building because the security guards are watching the football and not their CCTV screens, right? We need to be always alert, awake and focused. For the Son of Man, says Jesus, is coming at an hour we do not expect. And the only way not to suffer loss is to be always ready. And our Lord's going to go on and tell us how we can be ready in verses 45 to 51. And also in the two stories in chapter 25, the story of the ten virgins and the story of the talents entrusted to the three servants, which Clinton will speak on next week. (coughs) But before we think about how our Lord says we can be ready, let's think about this reality, that no one but the Father knows the time of our Lord's return and that Jesus says he is coming at an hour we do not expect. Let's think about that and about how good, how helpful it is to us that we don't know the time. You see, there may be many things in the world that we observe that help to sustain or increase our alertness. For example, recognising with each war and each earthquake the truth of Jesus' description of the character of our age and age suffering from our rebellion against God and which has a definite use-by date. Or thinking about the fulfilment of Jesus' words in the fall of Jerusalem 
or being encouraged by the turning of many Jews to the Jewish saviour, Jesus, seeing God's plan for the salvation of all Israel through the gospel going to non-Jew and Jew being fulfilled. I mean, that might make us alert to the coming in, as might the progress of the gospel to all nations over the last 200 years, or observing the mystery of lawlessness at work, the spread of proud rebellion against God and false religions, of which Paul speaks in 2 Thessalonians. Now, seeing any and all of those things happening around us may heighten our alertness, but hopefully not our anxiety because the Lord reigns, but they may heighten our alertness. But nothing should make you speculate about or calculate the time of our Lord's return or listen to those who do. You see, that's both to go against the clear teaching of our Lord Jesus and to frustrate the good our Lord does us by telling us that no one knows that day or hour, which means you know, no one knows the time, including the year or the decade of our Lord's return. Now, what good does not knowing the time do us? Well, it should mean that we're always alert, always looking to Jesus and living with hope, having his future at the forefront of our thinking. And the unknown time gives us comfort in all circumstances. It means Jesus is always close. He's never distant. His return possible at all times and so at any time, even the darkest times. And not knowing the time means the thought of his return always has power to unsettle us, to stop us from being totally absorbed in this life and this world to help us resist love of this age because we know it could all be gone in an instant, the house, the job, the family, all gone in a moment. Now, all that is good for us. (coughs) Not knowing the time also gives us the opportunity to live like God's son by practising the humility of the son by leaving the day of our vindication in Christ, the day when we come to our internal inheritance to the Father, not worrying about it or speculating about it because we trust him and instead getting on with the work entrusted to us. To help you resist false teachers who arise in every age with predictions of the time of our Lord's return, just think for a moment of the awful pride that says that what was unknown to the Son and he was content in the far, to leave in the Father's hands to say that, well, what was unknown to the Son, I must and can and do know, whether by prophetic revelation or studious calculation. Now, that pride is not faith, though it might masquerade as faith, use the language of the Spirit or of Bible faithfulness, but it is not the faith of the Son of God. Speculation about the day, calculation of the date is harmful. It distracts us from being ready because the time and energy used to pursue what you cannot know means you neglect the will of God you do know. Being ready by engaging in the task the Lord's entrusted to us. You and I are much better off, much more ready thinking about how you can love your neighbour than trying to work out the time of Jesus' return. 
And if Jesus' clear word doesn't convince people he would return and could return at any time, well, don't kid yourself into thinking your speculation and conclusions will convince people to get ready for his return. They won't believe Jesus. Believe me, they're not going to believe you, right? Knowing our Lord will return at an hour we do not expect we means we have to be always ready. But how are we ready? Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has put in charge of his household to give them food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom the master finds doing his job when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says in his heart, my master's delayed and starts to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, that servant's master will come on a day he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know, he will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So readiness is keeping on with the task entrusted to us, being the servant whom the master finds doing his job when he comes. And not being ready is using what is entrusted to you to abuse others and to indulge yourself, to live a selfish life. Being found ready is blessedness, life and peace in a continuing relationship with our Lord. And being found unready is eternal death, a place with the hypocrites. Now let me flesh that out. Readiness is keeping the task, keeping on with the task entrusted to us, being the servant whom the master finds doing his job when he comes. Now this is instruction for us all, not just those in positions of responsibility for others in the church. Every believer is a servant of the Lord Jesus, a steward of the resources entrusted to them. (coughs) And every believer is expected to use what's given us in conformity to our Lord's will for the good of others. So what are the jobs, the work our Lord wants us to be busy with when he comes? Well, Well, some of that's particular to where we are in life. For example, if we have children bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, if married, respecting our husbands and loving our wives. And those particular tasks can vary over time. Single, we can become married. Married, we can become single again. We might have a time, we might for a time have specific responsibilities in an organisation or in the congregation, say teaching Sunday school, serving as a deacon, caring for property, being a pastor. And these can vary over time as well. We can have responsibilities, service that's there for a time in our particular circumstances. But there is service that is expected of us all, all the time. Loving our neighbours, even though our neighbours, who they are and the way in which they need to be loved will vary over time. Living godly lives, what Paul characterises as a self-controlled life of uh, of faith and love and hope, or Peter, the holy conduct and godliness. But there's more. In Matthew, we have heard our Lord call all believers to be salt and light in the world, doing the good that brings others to praise our God by living according to Jesus' teaching. That has to be us all our lives. 
And this gospel ends with calling us all to be disciples who, like the first disciples and taught by them, are making disciples of all nations, calling others to follow him and teaching them what our Lord has taught us. Again, that must be us all the time, although the context in which we do it can change over time and without changing circumstances. Being ready is keeping on with the tasks entrusted to us, being the servant whom the master finds doing his job when he comes. And not being ready is using what's entrusted to you to abuse others and to indulge yourself, to live a selfish life. Now notice that our Lord is not talking, when he's talking of the wicked servant, of someone who gives up a particular task, say, because they're sick or their life circumstances have changed. That's just a change in the context of our lives and so of our service. The servant who will be caught out by our Lord's unexpected return and incur his wrath is one who stays in the role given him by the master but who now uses the authority and resources entrusted to him to do the master's will to do instead his own will, to act selfishly. And so he bullies others, pushes them around to get his own way, have them afraid of him, and he pursues his own pleasures, indulging himself with company that will support his self-centred lifestyle with the drunkards. Now, we can be that wicked servant in any stage of life with any set of responsibilities. You know, we can be a parent who expects the rest of the house to be organised around our wishes and wants. We can be a pastor who thinks the congregation is there to serve them and promote them and not the other way around, that they're there to serve the Lord's people. Or we can be a believer who thinks they've grown beyond being concerned for the salvation of others, committed to making disciples, and so wants to use their time and resources, the good gifts God has given them, to pursue their own private pleasures and plans. What makes the difference between the faithful and wise servant and the wicked servant? Because they both start well, don't they? They both look the same. But the difference becomes apparent with the passing of time and the way they understand that. The wise servant understands that the time of the master's return was always in the master's hands and while indefinite is certain. And because the master is trustworthy, the passing of time doesn't make it less certain, just closer. But the wicked servant says in his heart, my master's delayed. That servant had a time in his head in which he thought the master must return and the master's non-arrival according to his expectations is understood as neglect or inability or disinterest, an opportunity to replace the master's will with his own. And the difference, this difference, becomes apparent with the passing of time. But the passing of time is not the cause of the difference. Rather, the passing of time reveals the different hearts of the wise and the wicked servants. You see, the wise servant keeps on doing what he's been entrusted with because he trusts and loves his master. He lives to please his master, and so the passing of time is just more opportunity for loving service. The wicked servant, however, 
is revealed by the passing of time as one who doesn't trust or love his master. His obedience at the start had its origin in other motives, fear of punishment, of blame, or maybe the possibility of advancement that service offered. But when he thinks the master won't be present, trusting his own assessment of the situation and not his master's word, his selfish heart expresses itself. And that's the same for us. <coughs> it's not the length of time to our Lord's return that will make the difference between whether we are ready or unready. It is our hearts, whether we love our Lord Jesus or not. If we love him, whatever our changing circumstances, sick or well, in work or retired, single or married, and however long our lives, we will see that time as a time to serve him. We will be, love him by doing his will. Oh, and if we don't, don't love him. If it was fear or self-concern, you know, wanting a certain lifestyle or community or the praise of others that had us joining in with God's people, even serving amongst them, well, if we don't love him, time will reveal that. And that love of self will express itself. And when he appears, we'll receive what we deserve, a place among the hypocrites. For that's what those who are play-acting their service of Jesus, but actually using it as their opportunity to uh, promote their own selfish indulgence. That's what hypocrites are. And so we'll receive a place amongst the hypocrites. Because not loving our Lord... We live for self and not for him. History has a goal. Our Lord will return, a return that's serious, certain and wonderful, which will happen at the time of the Father's choosing, a return that will mark our lives as worthwhile or wasted, lives which will rise to life or to condemnation, a return whose time is unknown by us, unannounced like a thief in the night, the Lord Jesus tells us all this for a purpose so that we will be ready. And so the question, and you ought to think this is the question God has brought you here this morning to engage with. The question is, will you be ready? Because you have listened to the Lord Jesus and believed him. Now, perhaps you're not yet a believer and you've never engaged with that question or maybe you've thought you could put off answering it because you're too busy with other things. Well, now is the time to get ready. If you don't want that day to sweep you away to destruction like Noah's generation, to get ready by repenting and believing the gospel, that the Lord Jesus has died for our sins, been buried and has been raised to reign to get ready by turning away from being the boss of your own life, the one who can decide for yourself what is right and wrong and confessing that Jesus is Lord, the one who rules all things and who has a right to command your life, the one who has authority both to judge, to judge you by his standards, not yours, and to forgive, to forgive you. Making that confession and then asking him to forgive you and give you his spirit and make you one of his people. And that's a simple prayer. Like, Lord Jesus, I've been wrong to ignore you and disobey you. Please forgive me and make me one of your people. If you are not ready, you should get ready. 
Perhaps you've heard it all before. You're sitting here but willfully rejecting the thought that one day the Lord Jesus will return in glory because it is a real threat to you living to please yourself. Well, abandon that proud rejection. Jesus has risen from the dead. Wanting that not to be so won't keep him in the grave. You will meet him. And you can either meet him now as one who can forgive your proud rejection and give you life, or you will meet him then as judge when there is no more time to make peace with him. So abandon that rejection. But perhaps you're a believer, someone who confesses, as we'll confess next week in the creed, that the Lord Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead. Our Lord asks the same question of us, especially to those of us who have been believers for a while, the way the passing of time has had time to reveal our hearts. Will you and I be ready? Ready because we are keeping on with the work our Lord has entrusted to us? Or has the passing of time made us unready? Have we drifted into a life lived for self, whatever its outward form? You know your heart. I mean, that's easy to do in our culture, isn't it, that marginalises any belief in God to psychological comfort, not a living Lord you'll meet, that says life is pursuing your own dreams and even speaks of getting older or that time when the kids leave home as a time to focus on yourself. That's the message of our society. However long you've been a believer, what do you think your Lord will think of the way you are using your time, which is his time, your money, which is his money, your abilities, which is his gift? You see, these are his words. You must be ready because the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And readiness is not what you used to do. You know, when you're back there in youth group, you know, or whatever, uni. Uh, no, it's what you are doing. So ask. Ask to make sure you are ready. And if the answer is not good, well, repent of selfishness. Turn away from a life that has no other purpose than your own security and comfort. Ask the Lord to renew your zeal to show you the good he would have you do, to make you willing to give your time to serve, whether it's supporting others, teaching others, using your gifts to encourage others, actually to keep you being salt and light. And yes, ask him to keep you being a disciple who is always wanting to make disciples and who shares in that work in any way you're able because that is why our Lord waits. He doesn't want any to perish, but all to come to a knowledge of the truth. And as we think about being ready, let's together resolve to continue in those things that will help us all, as those who know our Lord's return is certain, even if the exact time is unknown. Let's resolve to continue together in those things that help us all sustain our readiness because it matters. You see, you know those things, don't you? Meeting to encourage each other. I mean, Hebrews says that you should do that all the more 
as you see the day approaching, teaching and admonishing one another so that none are hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Oh, embracing the encouragement of meditating on God's word and hearing it together, engaging in the prayer that orients us to our Lord's will, prayer that he would return. Brothers and sisters, these are his words, your Saviour's words to you. You also must be ready because the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Amen. Pray that day will be soon. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, in your great mercy, help us not to have wasted our time here this morning. Please let your word sink deep into our hearts and move us by the encouragement of your word to be those who are ready for our Lord's certain return ready because we love him and trust him and so persevere in doing the good work he calls us to. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.